Okay, Alexander, mm -hmm. we're live. And I'm just going to do one quick check. How are you doing today? I'm very well. I'm very interested in news. Lots of intrigues. Intrigues in Washington, intrigues in Kiev, very bizarre intrigues in Kiev. Uh, and uh, all, all kinds of things going on around the world. But of course, two great tragedies at the center of it all. One in uh, the Middle East, one in Ukraine. And a political leadership in the West that is completely out of, um, out of its depth in handling both. Yeah. Biden's going to be Alensky kirsched I think. I think you're right. Absolutely. That's going to be this a big is, one. I think, it's, I think it's absolutely correct. There's an extraordinary article mm. in, the, in the Washington Post in which they, can, they said that uh, uh, a, um, somebody close to the uh, thinking of the administration, and that really begs the question, who is close to the thinking of the administration? Might it be somebody whose initials are uh, 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 B.O.? Just, 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 just anyway, he, he, he says, you know, that the whole thing is a train wreck and we have no control. This is talking about the situation in the Middle East, a train wreck and we have no control. Well, you know, who is in charge? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's let's just uh, get started and let's mm. start uh, answering questions mm. from everybody yeah. that is watching yeah. us on uh, Rumble, on Odyssey, Rockfin. YouTube and the Duran locals .com. and uh, hello tower moderators Valley yes hope you are doing well Valley yes and uh, Alan hey Alan how are you doing mm -hmm. today and who else I think that's it for now but I'm sure more moderators will be jumping on as the program moves along hmm. so uh let's see alexander let's let's take this one from sanjeva alexander you described how the end played out in the uh, confederacy and it Absolutely. was all new info to me yeah didn't know how appomattox was first was first of many generals yeah. surrendering. Can yes. you go through that again? It was interesting, especially yeah. present-day parallels. Yes, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to... Civil War. Yeah, Civil War, the American Civil War, the American Civil War. Now, can I just say, first of all, before I do that, I mean, it's a comparison that many people have made, that a lot of the quality of this conflict in Ukraine resembles the Civil War. These are parts of what were once one country, Ukraine and Russia, you know, for, since the 17th century formed one country. There are enormous cultural um, overlaps and religious overlaps uh, um, and ethnic overlaps as well. So there is, a, there is a quality of civil war about this conflict. And again, very much has happened in the conflict between North and South in the United States in the 1860s. There are uh, one side is much, much bigger, much stronger, far more powerful. And eventually it prevails. It is prevailing against the other, which is exactly what happened also during the Civil War. Now, in the Civil War, the uh, con major Confederate army, the most important Confederate army, was one led by General Robert E. Lee, who by this point, the end of the Civil War in 1865, was also the overall military commander of the entire Confederacy. He'd been appointed to that role relatively recently by the Confederate president, 
Jefferson Davis. And he was up against the much bigger, far more powerful uh, Union Army led by General Ulysses Grant, who was the overall commander of the Union forces, having been appointed to that position by President Lincoln. Now, Grant conducted a war of attrition against the con Confederacy. Instead of trying to defeat the Confederate armies tactically through clever maneuvers and that sort of thing, he understood that the Union was much more powerful and he basically set out to grind the Confederates down. And that is what he did. Now, there was a long period of attrition lasting through the 1864, which is in some ways the grimmest year of the war. And eventually, the Confederate army that was directly commanded by General Lee found itself in an un impossible and unsustainable position. They were cut off from retreat. They were heavily outnumbered by the Union forces. And without consulting President Jefferson Davis, the head of the Confederacy, General Lee, the overall Confederate commander, contacted General Grant and said, will you accept my surrender? My surrender and the surrender of my army. And General Grant said yes. And they had a meeting at a place called Appomattox Courthouse, which is actually a village. They met in a building there and General Lee surrendered. Now, he did that without consulting, as I said, with the Confederate government. Now, when Lee surrendered, there were a large number of other Confederate armies fighting in different parts of the war zone. But as they heard the news that General Lee had surrendered, that started a cascade. And again, without consulting President Jefferson Davis, who, by the way, was himself shortly afterwards captured, Confederate commanders, one by one, also started to surrender to the Union forces. And this process went on for about two months. So Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in April. From memory, now this is a long time since I read all of this, the last Confederate army actually resigned in June, uh, uh, surrendered in June. So this was a process of one surrender following after another. And that, in the end, brought about the collapse of Confederate resistance. All of the armies, in effect, melted away. The Confederacy itself never surrendered. Uh, Jefferson Davis, the president, was captured, but there was no formal surrender document ever signed by the Confederacy itself. Mm -hmm. Stefano, welcome to the Drag Community. Elena Diaz says, 7th November 1917, Russian Revolution Day. Lenin's words. Come on, man. <laughs> Tube. <laughs> one sec, Elena. One yeah. second. YouTube's giving me trouble. Pulling Indeed. This up. It, what? It, it, yeah, go on. <laughs> go on, Alex. Uh, I'll get back to that question. I'll get back mm. to that question. It's not coming up. I was reading it and it disappeared and I can't bring mm. it up again. 
Um, let's go to Ricardo Alfonso, who says, still waiting for the Olenski curse to hit true dope. Um, don't wait too long. Don't, wor yeah. don't worry. As I said, I, I, th I think we're going to start to see a cascade soon. And uh, 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 the big domino, which is now starting to look like it might fall, is the one in the United States. I'm, uh, um, Biden's position is beginning to look a little precarious. Yeah. All right. Here it is from Ellen. Uh, 7th of November, 1917, Russian Revolution Day, Lenin's words. There are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. So true. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely true. Lenin said lots of clever things, by the way. He's a very clever man. 7th of November, you're absolutely right. It's the anniversary of the October Revolution. These uh, Bolsheviks, of course, uh, changed the calendar. The Orthodox Church in Russia, by the way, still uses the old pre-revolutionary calendar, just saying. But they yeah. changed the calendar, and on the 7th of October, throughout the Soviet years, this was the, 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 the big parades you, on Red Square used to happen on the 7th of November. Uh, Putin, back in, I think, 2005, decided that he would change the autumn holiday from the 7th of November, which is today. He took it forward to the 4th of November, which commemorates the liberation of Moscow from the Poles in the 18th, in the 17th century. Uh, Stephen, thank you for that super sticker. Ryan says, is part of the Russian plan to denazify Ukraine going to be restoring order to orthodoxy and ban the schismatic sect? I cannot imagine that any other outcome is possible. <laughs> I mean, I you know, given the feelings, not just of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, but of the Orthodox Church, the vast majority of Orthodox believers in Ukraine and the clergy there, if there is a peace settlement between Russia and Ukraine, I can't imagine that this, set, this um, group, this faction, that has established itself as the church in Ukraine is going to survive, at least in any in any significant form. And I can't imagine that Putin himself, who is a orthodox, practicing orthodox Christian, will want it to survive either. From Radio Constantinopolis says, is there really any other way for Israel to survive than to abandon the West and turn to Eurasia? The dying West would mean death to Israel, too. Well, I think that might might eventually and conceivably happen. And I know that there are some people in Israel, uh, though that it must be said that there are not many. And I understand mainly to be found in intellectual circles, and some religious circles as well, who are starting to think about that. But I do think one has to understand this. I think that if... Israel does decide to reorient towards the Eurasian states, then they will need to also accept what the Eurasian states want them to do, which is to come to some kind of long-term sustainable settlement of their conflict with the Palestinians. Now, I think that the Eurasian states, if Israel were to decide to do that, would step in and help. I mean, I mean, I think they could, and I think potentially they could help in important ways, but that would mean a change in current Israeli policy. Lord Jessica says, Douglas McGregor says that Turkey is mobilizing and will get involved and particularly destroy Israel. Also, the word is that Israel intends to destroy and assimilate Gaza entirely. 
Right. About about. I haven't heard. I'm I'm here. I'm, I'm no. close to, to Turkey. No. I haven't no. heard anything like that. I don't know if you've heard anything like no, that. No, I heard here nothing about it. No, I, I have no I, talk of that. No, no, I haven't heard that. And I have to say, I mean, I, I disagree with Colonel McGregor. I cannot imagine any set of circumstances in which President Erdogan is going to risk everything by going to war with, with Israel. I mean, that is not what he's going to do. That is not what Turkey is going to do. Um, one should always understand with Erdogan, he says a lot of things. I mean, he talks in the most extraordinary, inflammatory, ferocious way. But we have become very accustomed to the fact, most people have become very accustomed to the fact, that he never actually <laughs> translates this fiery language that he indulges in into actual military action. And I've heard no nothing about any kind of mobilization in Turkey. I don't believe it's going to happen. I don't think we're going to see an Israeli-Turkish war. I mean, I, I, you know, I, 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 I want the moment absolutely clear. I'm sure, Alex, you think the same. I, I, I'm just telling you from Greece, I haven't no. heard, uh, yeah. heard any, any I mean, talk like this. I mean, so. even, even if he were to announce a mobilization, it would be talked. It would not be real, and it would not lead to an actual war. He never actually, he's prepared to fight uh, small wars and proxy wars. He's never going to take on a nuclear power like Israel. That is not what Erdogan is about. Now, about Israel taking control of Gaza, it's not all clear what plan Israel has for Gaza at the moment. And I think they're probably scrambling to work it out themselves. But Prime Minister Netanyahu today has talked about Israel taking uh, taking long-term responsibility for security in Gaza. And I have to say that does look like a renewal of the occupation to me. Now, whether that is actually a good idea for Israel, given that they previously withdrew from Gaza because they found that staying there was very difficult for them, I don't know. Uh, Radio Constantinopolis says if... Turkey enters the war against Israel. Should they hit a U.S. base in Greece and the destabilizing the Mitsotakis regime at well, the same time? Well, we're now we're now spiraling into even more yeah. <laughs> improbable and unlikely possibilities. As I said, Erdogan is not interested in this. You should not look to Turkey to start a war in the Middle East of this nature. Um, um, Iran. With Iran, things are much more uh, uh, dangerous. Not, I think, because Iran is looking for war, but because there are there is a group of people in the United States who ache to attack it. <laughs> but I don't foresee myself any kind of war between Turkey and Israel, and certainly not between Turkey and the United States at this time. Not with half the American fleet there also, yeah. by the way. <laughs> Stana, thank you for that super sticker. Ricardo says, ironically, the British and, and French supported Confederate states and the Russians supported the Union. It's mm. like the largest game of risk in history. This is so true. I mean, this is another aspect, by the way, of which there are uh, uh, uncanny resemblances between that war and the one currently in Ukraine. In the Britain and France and the European powers, overwhelmingly were overwhelmingly sympathetic to the Confederacy. And I've studied this. This is one war I have actually studied decades ago as an undergraduate when I did my history course. But it, it's important to say that British support, it was the British who were the key player because they were the great power at that time, for the Confederacy was more than just rhetorical. Um, 
they were um, providing uh, weapons to the Confederacy. There was a lot of gun running. And the British Navy, the British fleet, was active, uh, basically enabling or trying to enable that kind of gun, run, gun running to take place. And there was even a certain amount of financial support as well. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. The um, European great powers at that time, Britain and France, backed the Confederacy. And irony of ironies, the Russians strongly, vigorously backed the United States. They sent their fleet to San Francisco and New York to make it clear that they were supporting the United States. And the Tsar also informed uh, Britain and France that if they went to war with the United States, Russia would see that as an act of war against itself. So you can't imagine stronger support than that. From Tool, FATH says, does Russia follow the Gaza situation from the Black Sea? Is it likely they will officially enter the Mediterranean Sea where Turkey and the USA already are? Also submarines, how many countries are below the surface there now? Well, the Russians are already in the Mediterranean. They have a base in Tartus, a naval base in Tartus. They have their air base at Khmeimim. They also have uh, um, uh, an extensive uh, naval presence, permanent, semi-permanent naval presence in the Mediterranean. There are also, of course, Russian um, civilian ships in the Mediterranean, some of which undoubtedly will operate on an intelligence basis. And as to Russian submarines, I'm pretty sure that they're there. But of course, I don't know anything about that. And of course, the Russians also have their eyes in the sky in the Black Sea, um, their AWACS aircraft and all of that. And they also have very, very powerful ground radars. They can track a lot of what is going on. And they will have their agents and their people on the ground. So they will be very, very well informed indeed about what is going on in the situation in this conflict zone. And of course, they will not be the only ones. Um, lots of countries are going to be observing what's taking place in the um, Middle East crisis. And um, all of the great powers will be, even the Chinese will be there in some, in some respects. Ilya Kuryakin asks about Avdevka surrendering a la General Lee. Well, it's not impossible. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, at the moment, at least, we're not there yet. But um, again, more reports this morning of more Russian advances in this area. Now, again, I want to stress I'm not a military person. I'm not a great tactician. <laughs> I don't understand these things hugely. But um, there is now a universal consensus about Avdevka that it is the linchpin of the entire Ukrainian de defense system in southern Donbass. And arguably, its loss will even affect the situation in Zaporozhye. And if Avdevka does fall, and one Ukrainian source put it as happening within two weeks, then, of course, we could start to see a, a cascade effect across all of the battle lines and major defeats and surrenders by Ukrainian forces. And perhaps it might start in um, Avdevka. Who's to say? Tim Gibson says the German mercenaries fought on Lincoln's side. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Again, irony of irony is here. True. Yeah. Tabernak says King the, can, I just, can, can I just say, yeah. the, one, the one consistent geopolitical 
rivalry, which was there in the 1860s and is there today, is the one between Britain and Russia. <laughs> the British and the Russians were opposed to each other in the 1860s, and they're opposed to each other today. Tabernacle says, King Baldwin did not pour oil on the fire by aiding Renald de Chatillon's raids. He punished sense senseless violence. Saladin later reciprocated in Jerusalem. Right. This is, this is, of course, referring to the events of the Crusades, and that's absolutely correct. If you're talking about Saladin himself, um, well, and King Baldwin, they were, you know, men of tremendous chivalry and humanity who obtained the respect of the other side. I mean, Saladin uh, a lot, gained a lot of respect in Christian Europe. And um, as I remember, I seem to remember, you know, even Dante, um, instead of putting him in you know, the dark places in hell, he had him in Elysium. <laughs> uh, NGS says, what do you think will be the result and the broader geopolitical consequences of the war in Ukraine? Is it time for some speculation yet? Well, I have already speculated about this. If the war in Ukraine ends, the only way that I think it can with the Russian victory, then there will be a major change in the geopolitical picture. Uh, the Russia, Russia will be in a, will be far more powerful in Europe than it has been before. The United States will be perceived around the world as having suffered a major geopolitical defeat. Even Ukrainian Foreign Minister Kuleba, who is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, can see this. He's come actually out and said, if you can't win in Ukraine, where can you win? He's actually said that. Those are his yeah. words. So, you know, that 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 will change fundamentally. The, I mean, the way in which the world perceives Russia and perceives the United States, it will mark the full re-entry of Russia into the League of Global Superpowers. So Russia will be a superpower again, alongside the United States and China, but Russia will be a victorious superpower. The United States in Ukraine will be a defeated superpower. And as for Europe, <laughs> Well, that will be broken and in crisis. And we can start to see increasingly that in Eastern Europe, especially, um, the chips are beginning to fall. Countries are beginning to realign. We've seen elections in Slovakia. There were local elections in Moldova. I gather there's also elections coming in Romania, where there's a party which says we must get out of Ukraine. This isn't our quarrel. All things like that will start to happen. Yeah. The drowning man, as Duda said. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the finance minister of Ukraine said, give, give us 29 billion. He told the EU, give us 29 billion or else mm. you will have a migrant and a food crisis. Yes. That's what he told the EU. Mm. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. Mm. Elena says, uh, we want peace, but at this point, we are sacrificing the Palestinian people for our comfort, not saying it's bad or good, just that what it is when. Thousands die every week, and Israel is counting on this. Well, there, that is, there is a lot of truth in that. But of course, I mean, this isn't, this isn't securing our peace, our, our own security and comfort. Letting this crisis fester and grow in this way, I'm going to suggest it's going to make everybody in the end uh, less secure. It's going to make people in Europe, where we have very large Muslim populations, who are becoming increasingly angry about this whole affair and radicalized 
in dangerous ways, they, they could become dangerous too. We could start to see uh, geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East. We could see huge migrant flows that flow from that. We could see a renewal of war. So I, I don't think we have the luxury of standing aside and leaving it to the Israelis to sort it out in Gaza. Because first of all, I'm not sure that they can sort it out in Gaza. And one way or the other, I worry that whatever happens, uh, if it's left to itself, it could end up making things worse. Terrace Thesis says, would many of the great tragedies of our time have been avoided had Bismarck not taken French land and reparations in the Franco-Prussian War? Yes, it's the short answer. Um, and I think uh, actually that Bismarck himself eventually came to understand this. It's not widely known, but um, after some years after the Franco-Prussian War and the reunification of Germany, he made very, very serious efforts to achieve a rapprochement with France. And Bismarck's mother, of course, was French, a fact which isn't widely known. And he was very attracted to French culture and he famously preferred French champagne to German sect. So you see, he, he was always actually, in some respects, something of a Francophile. But what he found is that that was impossible because Germany had a next territory that France considered its own. Uh, Alsace and Lorraine, uh, cities like Metz and Strasbourg, and that made any and every attempt by Germany at that time to achieve a rapprochement with France, Bismarck himself to achieve a rapprochement with France. That made that impossible. And important to say, it is the ultimate cause of the First World War, because what happened was you had a Cold War between France and Germany, France seeking revenge over Germany and reconquest of its lost territories, and all of the other states in Europe realigned behind one or the other. Stephen, thank you for that super sticker. Uh, Sanjeva says, Alex, still waiting for your synopsis about your experience and opinion of your stay in Russia, or did I miss it? No, I, I haven't done it yet, Sanjeva. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's been so much to do. There's been so I mean, much to I mean, do. We yeah. haven't had a moment. We'll, 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 try to, we'll try to do a show on it. I promise yeah. we'll try to get that done. Thank you for yeah. that. Uh, Mike says, will the West get involved in Myanmar? Oh, I hope not. I mean, goodness knows. I mean, we've got, we got problem, a crisis in Ukraine. We've got a crisis in the Middle East. And we're now going to start getting involved in Myanmar. I mean, that, that, I mean this would be piling folly upon folly. I, I sincerely hope not. I know that there is talk of it. But, I mean, in Myanmar, so close to China, seen, well, it borders China, seen by China as an essential ally. I mean, that would be a disastrous mistake. Irish Partisan says, we still celebrate the October Revolution holiday here in Belarus, the only country to do so. Back to work tomorrow. I know, absolutely. In China, they also celebrate it, though I don't think it's a holiday there. Raphael says, Alexander, it helped out that General Longstreet's second-in-command to General Lee was General Grant's best man at his wedding. At his wedding. Oh, yeah. Easy to make peace. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, when Grant and Lee met, Apparently, they'd met once before, uh, you know, long with about 20 years before, but they both surprisingly remembered that previous meeting. And apparently, they were uh, 
very emotional with each other, and Grant was in tears. So I mean, you know, it did, it did, it it was possible. It was easier to achieve that reconciliation. But don't forget, in the actual war itself, there was also enormous anger and hatred on both sides, and that lingered also after the war. So, it, you know, it, a lot of complex emotions, not, I suspect, so very different in, in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I am Valentina says, it seems like a good time for Hezbollah to jump in. Plus, Jordan has given a warning to Israel, yeah. has given a warning. Israel is going full force soon. Well, yes. I mean, I, can I just turn to that Israeli uh, Jordanian warning? Because they said that if, they, if there is a displacement of people from the West Bank or uh, uh, Gaza, they will see that as a declaration of war, which is quite a strong statement. But again, I think people need to unpack that. I think what it actually means is not that Jordan is going to attack Israel or try to stop Israel by military means, which Jordan has no means to do. It's a small country with only a relatively small army. What it means is that the entire process of normalization of relations between Jordan and Israel, which have included a peace treaty, will go into reverse and that Jordan will consider itself to be back in the same position that it was in before that peace treaty was signed when it was in a state of war with Israel. So I think that is what the Jordanians are saying, that the entire process, the Abraham Accords, all of that, that that is now at stake, that if the Israelis continue down this particular course, it will end um, in that way. My impression is that Hezbollah at the moment is under strict <laughs> advice, orders, if you refer from Iran, don't start anything. We don't want a regional war. We're trying to avoid one. And that is what Hassan Nasrallah, in his speech, as far as I could see, was also trying to say. Uh, S. Vlad 90 says, the military occupation in Ukraine is a mess. The people feel like slaves. They are caught up in the streets and put into military vehicles. I see problems in Ukraine soon with a number of available men. It is already so hard that it is hard to find personnel for business. Personnel for business and personnel to fill up the ranks of the army. Now, again, I, I, I can't remember which of these recent articles, but they said that the uh, mobilization attempt over the course of the summer and the autumn failed disastrously, that they weren't able to get anywhere near the numbers of people to join up that they were expecting, despite all of the measures that they're taking. And yes, not enough men for not enough people to run the businesses but not enough people for the military. The Time magazine article, I think it was, said that the administration, the Biden administration, including President Biden himself, are worried that even if Ukraine were given all the weapons it was promised, there aren't enough men to use them, which is an astonishing thing to say. Yeah, quite an omission from Biden. Yeah. Uh, Ricardo Afonso says, a Duran City Walking Tour channel, I'd subscribe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. With 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 that, absolutely. I mean, you know, Alex Alex could do the tour tour, and I would perhaps help. I'm not particularly good at that kind of thing, but you know, uh, um, definitely, why not? Uh, let's see here. Uh, Radio Constantinopoli says, "Is Turkey really a joke to the Central Asia Turkish world?" A joke? 
No, I don't think it's a joke. <laughs> I don't think it's a joke at all. I'm they had a meeting. They had a summit like a they couple of days summit. ago. Yeah, they had a summit a couple of days ago. I don't think it's a joke. I mean, the, the, all, all of these countries obviously want to have good relations with Turkey. Why wouldn't they want to have good relations with Turkey? But um, Putin is going to Kazakhstan on the 9th of November. Ultimately, Turkey is important to them. And Turkey has been playing up. Erdogan has been emphasizing the cultural links. But for these countries, the main the main countries that matter are China and Russia. Elza says, looks like Biden and Blinken are becoming pariahs in the Middle East. Is there a bad thing about the U.S. losing dominance in the region? Well, um, I think that the U.S. is going to lose dominance in the region. And perhaps in the end, it will be a good thing, in good thing for the United States, which Many people there don't want to be involved in the Middle East anymore. What good has it brought them to be involved in the Middle East? And perhaps good for the Middle East because um, the United States has not been very successful, not successful at all in its diplomacy there. So, yes, I agree. I think that we discussed this in our program yesterday. You can see it on the Duran, where Alex and I were commenting about the fact that the one thing every country in the Middle East, Israel, and all the Arab states are agreed about is that they don't like Joe Biden and they don't have any time for Tony Blinken. So that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. But the larger geopolitical position of the United States in the, U in the Middle East is probably now in uh, uh, irreversible decline. And for the US, that might be a good thing, you know, if they could see it. Yeah. Matlas X says, Alexander, you mentioned the chaos of the 1968 DNC convention and the Vietnam protests of that period after this weekend in D.C. Could there be a Kent, a Kent state massacre when troops fire on protesters? Well, I sincerely hope not. Mind you, that didn't happen in 1968. That happened from memory, either in 1971 or 72. So I, I'm not exactly sure when, but that did not actually happen in 1968. But I, I hope we don't find ourselves in that kind of situation. I mean, one of the things I have to say about 1968 is that it was an incredibly violent year. I mean, there was, um, there was the Vietnam War protests that began to take uh, hold. There was the uh, massive disruption of the Chicago Convention, the, the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. And then after the assassination of Martin Luther King, there were, there were riots in nearly all the big cities of the United States and very, very violent riots. So I mean, it, was, it, was a, it was a terrible year. And I hope that the United States doesn't experience anything like that next year. Though if it does, well, I can't say I will be completely surprised, but I hope it doesn't come to that. Robin R., thank you for that super chat. Uh, Dublin still says, not sure which article of the UN Charter, but Russia gave notice on the 15th of February that they were going to the Donbass region defense. Can any country do that for Palestine? No, <laughs> uh, um, I don't think so, because um, I think that... Um, the uh, Russians, when they exercised that provision in the UN Charter, they did so, they didn't do it so much for Donbass. They said that they were exercising a right of preemptive defense 
for themselves under the UN Charter. And there is provisions for that within the UN Charter. So uh, at the moment, other Arab countries are not being directly threatened. Now, that, of course, may change. But they can't exercise self-defense on, on behalf of Palestine. The only agency which is legally entitled to act preemptively to you know, launch that kind of a war in defense of Palestine would be the UN Security Council under Chapter 7 of the, char of the UN Charter. And of course, it's not shown any indication that it's going to do that. Uh, Emery says, observation, you guys are buying into financial MSM FUD when you repeat their talking points about EVs. Case in point, AM's impressions on Musk changed for the better when he had direct interactions with him. I, I'm not talking about I'm not EVs. Sure. I'm not, I, I, I've hardly discussed EVs. For, for, for what it's worth, I don't own one and I don't expect to. I am not a supporter of EVs. About, about uh, Musk himself, uh, I'll say it straightforwardly. I had, uh, I, I've had, I, I found his views about things like Ukraine and other matters refreshing. And they show that he is somebody who thinks well and long and hard about these, these matters in ways that I did find impressive. Something you don't find amongst um, others, other, other members of the American political class. The billionaire class. The billionaire class. Multi-multi-billionaire class. Yeah. Yeah. Multi -multi class. Yeah. Uh, Sparky says, the world won't soon forgive them. Israel's taken such a worldwide PR hit that they'll be lucky if in 75 years an Israeli Defense Forces veteran gets a standing ovation from the Canadian Parliament? <laughs> Good question. I, I, I think that if this thing stopped now, if it was to stop now, I think the damage could be contained, actually. But the longer it goes on, and the more of these terrible pictures we see, and the more uh, stories of human tragedy pour out of Gaza, the more the bigger the PR hit is going to be. And these terrible comments that Israeli officials have been making, including by Prime Minister uh, um, um, Netanyahu himself, I mean, the talk about Amalek and all that from the book of Joshua. Uh, well, all of that, I mean, it, that isn't making things any better. Let me put it that way. Raphael says, I believe Israel's going to be going to be China coming out party with them taking charge of the Security Council, China is getting ready to impose their will. Well, I don't know about, the, about imposing their will, but I think, in a sense, you're right. The Chinese Foreign Ministry in, uh, published a statement today. Uh, they're just taking charge, as you rightly said, of the Security Council. They're chairing the Security Council. And I think the Chinese, over the, next, the course of the next month, are going to be moving to use the Security Council to move forward Firstly, with the ceasefire in Gaza, which is what that Chinese ministry statement, prime ministry statement was all about. But also with China's idea for this international peace conference idea, which is starting to gain traction. Yeah. Uh, thank you, at Nautilus, for that photo. Thank you very much mm. for that. T. Carmichael, thank you so much for that. And Ignaki says, just your daily presence is comforting. Very tough times. 
<laughs> Tell me, telling us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, let's see, Russell Hall says, in an attempt to weaponize the power of horrific irony, Israel announced plans to deploy nerve gas against Palestine. I didn't see that. I, I mean, I, I find that uh, surely not nerve gas. I mean, that is, I mean, I, I think even the United States would not accept that. I can't believe that it was nerve gas, uh, um, tear, tear gas or something like that. That might gas, be different. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, nerve gas, I, I'm, I'm sure not. Yeah. Um, Sparky says Habas is a U.S. proxy via Qatar, not an Iranian proxy at all. U.S. control and financing of Hamas are laundered through Qatar. I don't know that it is a U.S. proxy, but it's certainly funded by Qatar. And the U.S. has certainly... Or, and to some extent, and this must be said, the Israeli government has looked the other way about Hamas. I mean, there are public comments, very reckless, foolish comments from Prime Minister Netanyahu, which appear to suggest, you know, we shouldn't be too bothered or worried about Hamas in uh, 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 Gaza, the real thing that we need to worry about is the Palestinian Authority, um, it, which showed a completely warped sense of priorities. But I don't think Hamas is a proxy of the US. Um, it does have a close connection to Qatar. Qatar has supported the Muslim Brotherhood across the Middle East. It has been locked in a rivalry for leadership of the Sunni world with Saudi Arabia, surprisingly. And uh, the Saudis dislike the Muslim Brotherhood. So Qatar backs the Muslim Brotherhood. And by extension, that means it backs Hamas. Radio Constantinopolis says, what will it take for Japan to start hinging on China? Well, J Japan and China, are all, the relationship there has continued to deteriorate. And Japan is in the process of a, a, a very significant rearmament, the scale of which I think has not been noticed much um, in, you know, around the world. In the Pacific, of course, it is taken very seriously. Mehdi says, what about the recent repeated fragging of high-ranking Ukraine officers? This happened in <laughs> Vietnam, and could the AFU command be concerned of it spreading? Well, it could, they, they will be very concerned about it. And there was a really awful video, and I have to say this, I don't know how reliable this video is, but it appears to show two Ukrainian soldiers killing two American contractors, mercenaries, if you like, who were trying to persuade them to go back and fight. And that did seem to be a very grisly affair. I, I don't know what the extent of this is in Ukraine. One thing that does seem to be happening and it is established, is that the numbers of Ukrainian soldiers who are giving up and handing themselves into the Russians is growing now very, very markedly indeed. We're hearing that thousands of them have handed themselves in. And there's even a unit of ex-Ukrainian soldiers who are now fighting alongside the Russians. Yeah. Russell Hall says that Israel considered using gas to flush the tunnels. Yes, I know. But I mean, nerve gas is the time. If gas is what well, there, there's different types of gas. I mean, if they use, uh, uh, you know, one of the riot control type gases, that's one thing. But nerve gas is, is something else again. I think that is a prohibited chemical. Uh, Imo Chanai says the British tried to blame the Russians for Jack the Ripper. 
indeed, really? indeed. This is absolutely true. One of the prime suspects was a, a, a Russian con man who was in London at that time. This is absolutely, I don't know where you found that piece of information. It's not very widely known. I mean, he was investigated and he was found out, found out to be a completely uh, buffoonish individual with all kinds of mental health issues, but, uh, you know, an incompetent con man and basically harmless. So yes, it's true, but it, it, it didn't gain traction. Alexander says, is there a timetable for the US dollar to lose its position in the world? No, there's no timetable. And, you know, none of us knows when it is, but it is going to happen. I mean, it would, it, it's inevitably going to happen. If you're no longer the world's dominant economy, you can't expect your currency to be the world's dominant currency. I mean, the two go together. Yeah. Um, Elia says Israel was talking about using nerve gas in the Hamas tunnels. Well, okay. I, I, okay. I mean, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> if they get, if they're going down that route, if they really are starting to go down that route, then they're going to get themselves into an enormous amount of trouble. I mean, even many of the people who are most strongly sympathetic to them, I think that would be a red line. So if they're doing that, I mean, it's it, 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 it's a crazy idea. Yeah. Um, and a terrible here? one. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Lissex says, so we have Ukraine, Taiwan, and the Middle East on the front burners and drain the U.S.'s resources. Meanwhile, Kosovo is bubbling on the back burner. True enough. All true. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it bring, it does make one nostalgic for that period of peace, which we had only a few years ago under Donald Trump. We, we, people didn't think of us as being in peace. But, I mean, you know, uh, can I just say, I mean, we were saying, Alex was saying, I was saying, you know, when Biden came in, that uh, this was going to be a disaster. Even I, even we, I think, did not anticipate the sheer scale of it. Yeah. Summer of 1970 says, can you talk about Yemen declaring war? Yeah, I mean, this is this is uh, 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 more serious than what Jordan is doing, because, of course, Yemen, I mean, the, the Houthis, the, the, the militia that are called the Houthis, are a very, very tough, very well-organized fighting force. And um, Yemen itself is an intractably difficult place to capture and defeat. And they now do have a large amount of weaponry and a large stock of weaponry, and they're already launching drones and missiles towards Israel. So this is something to take very seriously. The only thing I would say is that Yemen, of course, apart from the fact that it is a relatively small country, um, is also some distance from Israel. So um, it's not in a position to intervene directly, except by launching, for the moment, these missiles and drones, um, which have had only very limited effectiveness. But it's certainly a danger a dangerous situation, and certainly one to watch. And of course, Yemen has itself been involved in war, and war with the Saudis and others, and it's positioned close to the oil fields. And Well, one perhaps shouldn't imagine or speculate too far. Elza says, today Jack the Ripper would possess Novichok. <laughs> he certainly would. Jack the Ripper is an extraordinary case. There's some very, very good books about this. There was a, man, a particularly good book by a man called Sudcliffe or Sutcliffe, who really goes through all of the material with 
very methodically and systematically. And um, what I'm going to say about it is it was a botched police investigation. That is my own straightforward view. You know the scene in uh, Casablanca where um, the Humphrey Bogart character, Rick, Nick, Rick says, you know, uh, uh, you know, kills the German officer and the French, corrupt French policeman says to the uh, police officers who come, he says, you know, Major Strasser has been killed. Arrest all the usual suspects. <laughs> that is exactly what the British police were doing. They were arresting all the usual suspects. They didn't have a clue how to conduct an investigation like that. If they'd consulted the police in the United States, in New York or Paris or Germany, they'd have found him. The police in these other capitals were far in advance of the Met at that time. Sparky says, with thousands of children killed in Gaza, the West Bank, and Israel, maybe Alex Jones' Sandy Hook comments won't seem so bad to Elon, and he will let Alex on X. Elon banned Alex from Twitter, not X. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't think that, I, I don't agree with the banning of Alex Jones. I should say that straight away. Yeah. Radio Constantinopolis says, it's been discussed that when Eurasia takes over, we'll be looking at ethnic state Darwinism in the global arena, then the parasitic system with the West tried to apply. Please comment. No, I don't think this is true. I, I, I think that what the Eurasian states will want is not a system of all against all. I think they will want a much more stable and um, functioning global system in which sovereign states cooperate with each other what has been causing all the disruption is that the system based on sovereign states and underpinned by the US, UN Charter has been undermined by those who have wanted a globalist system which does not respect state boundaries. And that has been ruinous. Emery Chen says, please comment on the Chinese model of addressing extremists. Example, the Xinjiang re-education camps, improve economic opportunities, create jobs for youth, versus the U.S. West methods, chance for Israel and the West to copy? Well, what I'm going to say about it is this. I mean, I don't have an exact account of what the Chinese do, but I do get the impression that they do think through what they're going to do before they do it. And they come to it in a very systematic and methodical way. And they emphasize various tools not just kinetic ones, but educational ones, economic ones, all of those things. And they work, they bring a whole package to um, a conflict and that helps them, you know, ameliorate it and reduce it. So they can also be pretty tough and ruthless as well. And, you know, one shouldn't overlook that. And the Russians, by the way, are exactly the same. I mean, the Russians stabilize the situation in the Northern Caucasus after the wars of the 1990s and early 2000s. And they did that by working with local people, providing opportunities, rebuilding Grozny, uh, uh, finding people that they could work, at, work with like Kadyrov. Again, the, the problem with the Western approach is that it relies far too much on force. In fact, it only looks at force and doesn't understand diplomacy, politics, because, of course, those involve some degree of compromise, which is anathema to the neocon 
think mindset. Miss Texas G says, Alex Mercuris, please explain how the dynamic of the relationship between Biden and Zelensky and how that will direct the outcome of the end of hostilities with Russia. You know, the, the interesting paradox about that is that Zelensky is another one of the myriad of people who doesn't like Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe Biden apparently is another one of the myriad of people who doesn't like Zelensky. They don't apparently get on. So that's uh, that's part of the dynamic. Of course, they're tied to each other um, uh, because uh, Biden and his team thought that, you know, with Ukraine, they would be able to achieve their great regime change objective in Russia. They would break the Russian-Chinese alliance. They did all of those things. And of course, it hasn't worked out. And now they're trying to find some way to get Zelensky out. I don't think there's any doubt about this. We saw how Zelensky yesterday simply cancelled the elections, which clearly he now sees them as a device by the Americans and the West to lever him, leverage him out of office. And he's now sacking generals. And of course, one of uh, uh, Zeluzhny's um, assistants has just been killed in circumstances that look very, very much like a murder. In fact, I'm sure it was a murder. Yeah. Radio Constantinopolis says, is, is the fentanyl crisis in the U.S. really revenged by China for the opium wars? No, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think the Chinese would <laughs> uh, deliberately start a fentanyl crisis in the United States. I think the fentanyl crisis in the United States is the product of, inco of inconsistent, badly managed, and in many cases, I have to say this, corrupt law enforcement and health education and medical practices in the United States itself, as well as, of course, the major social tensions within U.S. society. Sparky says, does that Tennyson poem perpetuate British animosity towards Russia? You, the one that you mean about the uh, charge of the Light Brigade, you know, the 600 and all that. The interesting thing about that poem is that it isn't particularly anti-Russian dare I say, which it, compared to the other kind of literature that was circulating in Britain in the 19th century, it's actually quite measured. Now, um, I'm going to say this. I, I think that very, very few people today in Britain are very interested in Tennyson. And whereas in my childhood in Britain, uh, that poem about the Light Brigade, the charge of the Light Brigade was very well known in Britain. Today, I don't think many people know it, to be honest. So I, I don't think it has much effect. Um, if only it were that easy to explain why British hostility towards Russia is so strong. Mark Harper says, an indie Scotland in bricks. <laughs> well, I'm afraid. Uh, the, the, the truth is, I think that indie Scotland is looking less likely in the immediate term. Um, the Scots Nationals, Scottish Nationals Party became completely assimilated into the British political system. They lost interest in pursuing independence. They were doing perfectly well for themselves, uh, um, literally for themselves, when they were running the government in Scotland. The Scottish people finally became disillusioned with them. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the former first minister was exposed as presiding over a very corrupt system in Scotland. 
and support for the Nationalist Party in Scotland is collapsing. So I'm afraid I don't think that we're going to see an independent Scotland anytime soon. If the Scottish Nationalist Party had ever led Scotland into independence, bear in mind that it is fervidly pro-EU, as most independence activists in Scotland, to my knowledge, also are. Pierce Taylor, thank you for that super chat. Emery Chen says, uh, say San Francisco, Alex. Please correct Alexander. France, San Francisco. Sorry, I've been again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tyler Durden says, how will they justify the war with Iran? Well, they always find some means to justify. I did a whole program uh, some about a week ago in which I discussed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in 1864, in 1964, uh, and how uh, the U.S was able to convert various events that happened, up the facts of which to this day are not fully clear. And now they were able to use all of that to argue that an attack on, an attack on Viet, the, the intervention in Vietnam was carried out in self-defense. And they can do the same this time. They can find some incident, they can stoke up some incident, some attack by a sheer militia on an American base, say that Iran is behind it and justified an attack on Iran on that basis. It's not difficult for these people to find excuses to do what they want to do. Pascal Odubda, thank you for that super chat. Sparky, uh, oh, it's in German. Uh -huh. Sparky, I can't, I can't read that. Sparky, sorry. I need, I need a German speaker mm -hmm. to translate. Mm -hmm. If it isn't German, mm -hmm. I think. Um, Ricardo says, uh, no, I read that one already. Uh, let's see. Isabel says, you both keep me sane. Thank you, Isabel, for that. Mm -hmm. A sophisticated caveman says, can you foresee Iraq becoming wealthy, successful like the other Persian Gulf states or politically successful like Egypt? Lots of potential to tap. Yeah, I mean, it could happen. It, it, at one point, believe it or not, there was talk that it might happen. Um, um, before Saddam Hussein started that disastrous series of wars that he began with his attack on Iran in 1980, I think it was, um, Iran seemed to be doing quite well. Education was um, spreading. The economy was booming. I can even remember, you know, all kinds of people at that time were coming and investing in Iran, in Britain, I mean. And it was, you know, the talk of the place that it was going to, you know, it was going to become the big economic, new economic center of the Middle East. So if they manage to stabilize uh, and, you know, work on all of that, perhaps they will achieve it. But I have to say that that road looks very long and very stony for the moment. And one of the results of all those wars is a lot of the infrastructure that was built up in Saddam Hussein's dime, and before that by the monarchy, has been destroyed. Um, sectional hostility between Shia and Sunni has increased, and the government isn't in full control of the country. And the um, corruption problem is enormous. Until they resolve all of those problems, for Iran, Iraq to prosper is going to be very difficult. Uh. 
Chilla Dehan says, in geopolitical terms, can you give a rough estimate on how many cat paws equals a rabbit's foot? <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. Nautilus says, casino bars and tourist shops and beautiful women. Thank you very much for that, Nautilus. And Rafik Adams says, now that young woke elites of U.S. universities have been canceled for their anti-war pro-Palestinian stance, will the taboo on legitimate critique of the Israel government accelerate? Sign of change. Well, you know, you've, you've touched on, a, for me, actually, a very sore point, because um, some of these people who have been, I mean, I, I, I know people who have been, students, for example, who have been suspended from SOAS, which is, you know, a hotbed of left-wing <laughs> student activism in Britain, and always has been. Anyway, but those people who have been cancelled in that way, um, they don't seem to relate this to the larger campaign of cancelling others that we're also seeing <laughs> so th th they're concerned about their own freedom of speech but they're not concerned about freedom of speech for everyone and there still seems to be this this particular barrier now i think that about discussion of the middle east crisis and about israel and all of that i think that the Overton window of that is inevitably going to expand now. It already has. And I think it's going to be much more difficult to shut it down. But that's only one problem because the attacks on free speech in all other respects, it seems to me, continue unabated. Um, Anas says, how about the eschatological intransigence? Jews, Shiites, and evangelicals want to bring the Messiah and Judgment Day. Are we in a hurry for that? Well, some people are. And, you know, there's some Sunni Muslims who have eschatological ideas as well. I mean, ISIS was heavily into that kind of thing. So, I mean, there are such people, and they are a problem. I don't know how many they, they are. I get the sense not that many, actually. And um, the, the thing to do is to find ways to get around them. But, you know, they are there and they are going to be a problem. Jungle Jin says, military summary channels. He's a bad situation for Russia developing in Krimki, where yeah. Ukraine is ensconced on the East Bank. How significant is this? I, you know, this is a very good question because um, it depends so much on whom you go to about this. Um, the Russian, most Russian commentators don't seem to be particularly fussed about this. There's a, Rebar says there's 30 Ukrainian troops there. Others put it higher. One report put it as high as 300. But the general feeling amongst them is that this isn't really a major threat to the Russian positions, that the major Russian defences actually are somewhere still further to the east, that the new Russian commander is coming there, and that they will be able to get on top of this. There are some people, like Dima at the Military Summit Channel, who are more worried about this. Now, what I will say is this, the Ukrainians themselves don't seem to be very confident about what is happening in Kherson region. You have Zaluzhny coming out telling the economist, well, there's not going to be a breakthrough. So he doesn't apparently anticipate a breakthrough in Krinky. So he doesn't seem to have 
great hopes or expectations of it. And given that that is so, I think that um, it's probably not a significant problem or threat to the Russians. Elza says, Alex, could you tell us about your impressions of the European capitals you've been to recently? Any surprise? Was it great to see people recognizing you? Any surprise? Um, all the cities were nice. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised with uh, yeah. Budapest. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, all, all the cities, Prague, Sofia, Belgrade, all very, yeah. uh, very nice places. And yes, it's nice to to talk to people that want to <laughs> Now, the interesting uh, um, Budapest, which I've heard uh, wonderful things about, is the one capital and Vienna. And Vienna. Ca yeah, that Alex has visited that I, I haven't visited. Now, we, we've debriefed with each other about what Alex saw in Vienna, but I'll be very interested myself. I've never had time to talk about this, but there isn't any time to talk about anything at the moment, apart from news. But I'd be very interested to know what Alex's experiences of Prague and Sofia were. Sofia, I used to know extremely well. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice uh, cities. Nice. Uh, Rafik Adams says In the US Civil War, remarkably, Confederacy, led by Jewish Secretary of War, Secretary of State, and Attorney General, who defended white supremacy and was considered the brains of the Confederacy. Oh, interesting. Uh, Benjamin, crazy. Oh, right. Yes, I seem to. Yeah, you, you're, you're quite right. I, I do remember this. I mean, again, we're talking about events of decades ago. Well, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of people like that. And I'm sure you would find many, many Jewish people, perhaps more Jewish people on the northern side as well. Uh, Florina says, yet somehow Ukraine manages to produce record quantities of GMO grain. Well, Sparky says, good, bad, or indifferent, at least some people in the U.S. are protesting without astroturfing. Yeah. That's actually a good point, in fact, that um, that's another thing that I suspect worries some of our masters of the universe, that they've, up to now, they've been able to control protests and use protests, and now they're finding the protests can actually be used against them as well. Rafiq Adams says, can you briefly reiterate the rational approach that Israel could have taken in response to Gaza attack? Will Bibi and Biden survive their miscalculation? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the approach that I would have suggested if anybody had asked me, which of course they would, they don't, and which, by the way, I still find it astonishing that nobody, nobody has commented about in any Western media outlet that I have seen. What I think Israel ought to have done directly after the attack is obviously they needed to secure the border with Gaza. They needed to send their military back there. They needed to clear the settlements, or, uh, uh, you know, the, the Israeli settlements, the kibbutzes which had been attacked. And they needed to go immediately to the UN Security Council because clear, clearly there was a threat to peace. So the UN Security Council has a role and in fact it was created precisely in order to deal with this sort of problem. Now, Russia does not like Islamic terrorism and does not have good relations with Hamas. China loathes Islamic terrorism. We were talking just before about the Chinese policies in Xinjiang. We were talking about Russian policies in the North Caucasus. So they have no sympathy with Islamic terrorism. The Western powers, the Brit Britain, France, and the United States, would have 
obviously supported Israel. So Israel could have gone to the Security Council in that situation, asked for a resolution or a statement from the UN Security Council immediately condemning Hamas and demanding the immediate release of hostages, all of the hostages, unconditionally, declaring what had happened in southern Israel an act of terrorism, which again the council would have had no hesitation doing, and um, instructing Hamas to um, surrender to the authority of the council or to the authority of Israel or whoever, all of the people who were involved in carrying out the attack, uh, the uh, people planned it and commanded it, uh, the attack on Israel on the 7th of October. That would have been the first step. Now, probably, most probably, Hamas would have refused to comply with that statement, at which point the Security Council could have taken further action. It could have referred Hamas to the International Criminal Court, which would be the right thing to do. Hamas obviously isn't a signatory of the International Criminal Court, but the Security Council does have the power to refer a case to the, to the International Criminal Court. So they could have done that. They could also have moved further to declare Hamas itself a uh, terrorist organization, and they could have threatened sanctions under Chapter 7. When I talk about sanctions, sanctions, economic and financial sanctions, but also potentially military sanctions as well. And gradually, steadily, relentlessly, the pressure through the Security Council would have increased. The Arabs would have supported it because decisions made by the Security Council under Chapter 7 are binding and form a part of international law. Gradually, Hamas's sources of funding and support from countries like Qatar would have dried up. Dried up. Iran would have complied with these sanctions as well, because the Russians and the Chinese would have insisted that he do so. And Hamas would have become increasingly isolated. Its position would have become increasingly precarious. It would have faced uh, um, uh, international prohibitions. Its various offices in Arab states would have been closed down. And sooner or later, sooner rather than later, it would have cracked. You'd have started to see splits start to emerge and divisions start to emerge. And eventually, conceivably, the Security Council could also have ordered, ordered <clears throat> a peacekeeping force to be sent into Gaza under its aegis. And again, would Hamas have rejected a decision of the Security Council backed by all of the Arab states? Now, I don't want to predict too much. I don't want to go through, you know, how the whole process would have culminated because we can never know. Events are shaped by the events themselves. But I have no doubt whatsoever that this would have worked in the end and it would have left Israel in a far stronger position than the one it is in now. And, of course, the United States would have been in a stronger position still because as a permanent member of the Security Council, it would have been able to shape this process. Yeah. Uh, as a Lee Ryder says, why do you think it was so important for Israel to go through the motions of diplomacy and UN resolutions if they didn't think it would have worked? Well, I, I, first of all, um, 
it most probably would have worked. And is what Israel is doing working now? What is happening is there's a military campaign underway in Gaza. We don't yet know the outcome of that. We can see, however, that international pressure on Israel is growing. We can see that people, including many Jewish people around the world, are feeling increasingly insecure, which is disastrous. Jewish people should feel secure wherever they are, in Israel, in Europe, everywhere in the world, people should feel secure. Well, they're not doing so. We see Israel itself being increasingly criticized. We see resolutions now coming out of the General Assembly and uh, um, um, possibly, eventually, the Security Council. Also, we see the whole process of normalization with the Arab states going into reverse. We see tensions now starting to increase between Israel and uh, some European states. We see the relationship between Israel and Russia has all but collapsed. And we see criticism of Israel to an extent that I have never known in my lifetime start to grow and appear in the United States also. How would that be better than the process that I outlined? Tish M says, is a military coup the only way to save the U.S.? I understand no. that there are some mi sane minds still there. I understand yeah. that there are sane minds still there. Well, I don't think a military coup is a good idea. I think the Constitution, properly applied, provides the correct solutions. Um, what needs to happen is that all these many sane minds that do exist need to get together um, and work together to restore the Constitution to its proper place and to see that the um, government of the United States starts to function properly. And one place to start is by sorting out the legal system, by bringing all these ridiculous cases that we're seeing at the moment, the ones against the June 6th supporters, the ones against Donald Trump. January 6th. Jan sorry, January 6th as a supporter. The, ones, the one against Donald Trump brought to a stop politicized justice violates the constitution it is contrary to the fundamental principles of the constitution and it needs to be brought to an end bradley asks how will the u.s react to russia furnishing s-400s in lebanon syria and iran well first of all um they're not so far as i know intending to provide them to lebanon so i mean you know, i know hezbollah has floated that possibility but it hasn't yet happened. I think that the Russians will only supply S-400 systems to Iran in the event that they feel that the Iranians themselves are acting in a measured and careful way. And I think for the moment, we're not going to see that sale happen. I don't know that the Iranians have actually, so far, by the way, sought to buy S-400 missiles from Iran from Russia. Now, Syria, there are S-400 missile systems in Syria, but they are under Russian control. And I understand that the S-300 missile systems that the Syrians also have are indirectly under Russian control also. So the Russians will want to keep tight control over this thing. So the, U the US should not be alarmed by this development if it happens. In, on the contrary, arguably, it is a stabilizing one.
But of course, the danger is that people, some people in the United States who ache to attack Iran will use any any evidence of Russian weapons deliveries to Iran as an excuse to launch the war against the Iran that they hanker for. Summer of 1970 says, scariest moment for me this week is the reported estimate of 25 trillion in future investment on AI. Twenty-five trillion. It's a huge amount of money. I mean, that, that is, uh, wow. <laughs> Republic Sentinel says, has World War III already begun? If not, do either of you foresee it coming? Great show. No, I, I don't think it's yet begun, but we're closer to it than um, I've ever known in my lifetime, if I have to be honest. I mean, I don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in some ways, this is a much more difficult and complex uh, situation than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remain confident that we will get through. <laughs> I think that mo none of the people who are in charge yet are crazy enough or suicidal enough to take us over the edge, but we are living dangerously. And the first thing that we need to do, in my opinion, is to bring some kind of stability and sanity back to the decisions made in Washington. Ryan says, uh, safe to say if Trump does not get in to mend our economic relations around the world, then it's lights out for the foreseeable future for America. Well, that I, I have to say is a real danger. Uh, and I hope we don't get there. I mean, you know, if, if Trump, becomes president he will have a lot of work to do and he might face an awful lot of resistance conceivably if trump doesn't become president somebody else might become president who also does the right things i don't know who that would be though mobius zero with everything going on is the future of the world in east asia especially and namely china quite possibly i mean we're making it we're making china look more attractive and stronger to most of the world all the time. I mean, I say we, I mean people in the West. I don't think people understand this, but the Chinese are talking in a measured and rational way, and we are not. Raphael says, guys, my take is Russia and China are putting together what I call a bloodless coup d'etat. They, they want to take over NATO and the EU as a whole. Well, I think that the Russians want to see the end of NATO. I don't think they, they want to take it over. But I think what they're probably doing is they're pressing on with their war in Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, I, the special military operation there. I think they're becoming very confident now of victory, despite this problem in Kalinki, which I'm sure they will solve. I mean, we've had lots of episodes like this during the war in Ukraine. I should just add like the one in Kalinki, and people get excited about them, and then they blow over, and every time the Russians have shown that they can handle it. So I'm sure that they will handle this one. I've no doubt of it. So they will come come through, and that will strongly improve their position, and that will improve their position in Europe, and gradually what we will start to see is that the European Union will start to crumble under the weight of its own contradictions, and NATO itself will begin to look increasingly obsolete, including to people who matter in the United States. Um, Tag Derb says NATO should have been disbanded 30 years ago. Yes, <laughs> we would have saved ourselves so much trouble had that yeah. happened. Tish M says, serious inquiry. Hey, Alex and Alexander, what do you think about adding Snakes Islands Yachts Club apparel to Durant Shop? 
<laughs> one of and in calorician thank you for that super sticker kn uh, kareen says i find your coverage of geopolitics so interesting and fresh thanks for giving us a different perspective i watch all your channels thank you for that thank you thank you very much uh sadi thank you for that uh super chat sophisticated caveman says can you explain the civil war in syria in depth how the west turkey and russia became involved in depth, yeah. in depth, that would require a, a, a you know a program lasting two or three hours. Um, um, briefly, um, the, the thing to understand about the Syrian war is that again it has uh, it's it's a mix of geopolitical uh, politic politics and oil politics. I mean, there was certainly desires to control pipelines and to build pipelines across Syria and all of that. So that was important in itself. And it played a role. But the key thing was that Syria was this linchpin in this emerging trilateral alliance system of Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah. And I think that um, the neocons, who at that time were looking not just to change, to upset that system and to weaken Iran and Iran's influence in the Middle East, but who were also talking all together about a new Middle East, if you remember, that was very much their sort of thinking. They and were trying to use the Arab Spring, which they partly instigated, in order to change the whole Middle East. They basically encouraged an insurrection in Syria against President Assad's government, exploiting religious divisions within Syria that had always been there, and uh, people like the Muslim Brotherhood, who were a powerful political force in Syria, directing it against the secular nationalist government of President Assad, which, to be clear, was always backed by most Syrians. And that led to an insurrection against and a war. The United States and its allies backed it, and so did President Erdogan in Turkey, who is in some respects, also affiliated to the Muslim Brotherhood and who also had intentions to expand Turkish influence into northern Syria and who wanted to convert Syria into some kind of vassal state of Turkey. So that was what brought the whole war together. And uh, it turned out that Assad's government was much stronger than these people had counted on. And of course, the Russians eventually intervened to support it. That's a huge story. And I've just given a very sketchy account of it now. Aram Best Valor says, how many Jews would Hamas need to murder before Israel should be given a free hand? Well, this is, if you don't mind my saying so, a, a, a rhetorical question. Because um, first of all, it's not a question of one never has in geopolitics a free hand. I think that's the first thing to say. What you need to do, confronted with an organization like Hamas, you don't retreat into rhetoric because this is, as I say, it's a rhetoric. What you're giving is a piece of rhetoric. You need to think and calculate and say to yourself, what is going to work? What is going to succeed? What is going to make Israel's position better? 
what is going to make people in Israel more secure. You know, I, I, I've been confronted by this kind of argument before. I, I heard all this argument before, back in, you know, after the events of 9-11. I, I, I was hearing people say, you know, uh, um, I, I remember there was one big discussion that took place on BBC Radio when there was this person on radio explained the situation in Afghanistan, explained the situation in the Middle East. He said, we can't, you know, we've got to think what we're going to do. We, we, we've got a situation where most people sympathize and support us. We've got to build on that, isolate these people, defeat them in that way. And then there was Michael Rubin, notorious neocon. He came along, he made exactly the same kind of rhetorical comment that you've made. He said, we've got to just forget all about this. Just go after these people and fight them. And you've got 20 years of terror and 20 years of the war on terror. And that made the West's geopolitical position far worse. So what we need to do in these situations is think we've been given the faculty of reason as human beings. And what we need to do is to exercise it. Rafiq Adams says, um, Alexander Merkurs, do you feel the use of the Holocaust narrative, anti-Semitism as a justification defense for many of Israeli and U.S. bad policies effectively exhausted in light of ghastly Gaza response? No, I don't think so. And I, I, I think that you know, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable when people say that because, I mean, the, 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 one has to understand that the Holocaust remains the the massive colossal event in modern jewish history i mean it shapes everything that jewish people it, it's it shapes jewish responses it it explains an a, a huge amount about why jewish people respond to these things in the way that they do and one can't just park that aside and say you know we mustn't think about that either so of course we must think about that. And when Jewish people bring up the Holocaust, we can't just say, you know, you're weaponizing it. I, I, I don't think that helps. And I don't think that's right. But nonetheless, and in spite of that, one has to explain that, yes, that event did took place. It was a terrible tragedy for your people. It is the shadow that you know, affects you today. But in your own interests, when you're confronted with problems like this, you mustn't let your emotions shape your responses. You must think it through. Not a band account. Not a band account. Mm -hmm. Our old, friend. Our old friend. Account question. Our old friend. Love it. Uh, not a bad account. How soon will Putin help Iran attack Israel? He's not going to hurt. He's not going to attack Israel, and he's not going to help Iran attack Israel. I mean, Iran for the moment doesn't make it perfectly clear that they're not looking to attack Israel. But Putin, who is, by the way, someone with very, very strong. Uh, feelings of sympathy for the Jewish people. He was just, by the way, meeting a whole uh, group of rabbis in Moscow. Uh, there's pictures of him doing so, shaking hands with them 
on the occasion of, uh, you know, Civil Society Day or something of that nature. Anyway, the point is, he doesn't want war in the Middle East. He's doing everything he possibly can at the moment to prevent a war in the Middle East. That is why he's pressing for a ceasefire. So he's not going to encourage Iran to attack Israel. If Iran attacks Israel, no one will be more critical or angry about it than Putin himself. Orion Watcher, are there going to be elections in the U.S.? Every day comes closer to not. <laughs> That's a very good question. My own personal view is that, yes, there will be elections in the U.S. next year. The point is that an election process in the U.S. is a very complex affair. It is not just people coming out and voting. <laughs> they don't even vote on a particular day now. They come out and vote over many days and they vote in all sorts of strange, well, strange, they, they, they vote postally in all kinds of ways like that. But the point is that the, the key now, I think, is going to be not whether there will be an election, but who stands in it. <laughs> will it be Donald Trump or will they manage to find some way to stop him standing? And will Biden stand in it also? And that is a very, very big question, because as we said right at the start of this program, it does increasingly look as if there are more and more people within the Democratic Party, the political leadership of the United States, who are looking at Joe and they're saying this man can't cut it. He's not running the presidency well. He's putting us into all kinds of impossible positions and he's unlikely to win against Donald Trump in November. And we've had David Axelrod close friend of Barack Obama saying, you know, Joe, it's a team, all these great things, but he shouldn't seek to stand for election again. And I think we're going to be seeing an awful lot more than that. So it's a very controlled process. But I don't think it's going to be abolished. Sanjeva asks, will, will Nobel Peace Prize awarded to ex-president Barack Obama with the hope of him bringing world peace really paid off? Another win for the Nobel Committee. Funny how the same committee found Mahatma Gandhi too violent for the prize. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm straightforward about this. I think the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize is so discredited that it should be abolished. I, I, I think that it's been nothing more than a reward card uh, uh, for Western proxies. And at some points in the, in the past, undoubtedly, the CIA has apparently played a role in determining the winner. So I think it should all be abolished. Commander Crossfire says Israel loses nothing if they just let Palestine be. Well, I, I I don't think it is as straightforward as that. Not by, not at all. Um, I wish it was, but I think that there has to. Be, I I I think even Palestinians understand that in order to come to a situation where Palestine can just be left alone and be there has to be a sequence of negotiations le leading to some kind of negotiated outcome. Jamila says, thank you. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for your great report. I'm happy Zelensky lost attention. Victory for Russia. Yeah, absolutely. And some people are shedding tears about that in the media, by the way. <laughs> Stephen, thank you for that super sticker. Uh, Mobius Zero says, will China have to destroy Japan at some point? And why do people think Japan can take down a behemoth like China with no issue? Japan is not what it was in the 40s. And with one nuke, Japan becomes Uganda. 
Well, I certainly hope that we don't get into a situation where there is a war between China and Japan, and that will be a calamity. It would certainly, as you absolutely rightly say, be a calamity for Japan. And you're also absolutely right to say that today, China totally outmatches Japan, even if Japan does launch a big military buildup. Um, a Chinese commentator actually put it very well. He said, you know, that today, as a proportion of the Chinese economy, Japan stands in the same position as Taiwan did in 2000, the year 2000. So, you know, it's relative to China, it has greatly shrunk. And of course, it's got demographic problems. It doesn't have that many young people who could fight, all kinds of things of this kind. But do remember that Japan does have the capability to produce nuclear weapons. It is apparently reached that point where it could produce nuclear weapons very quickly. A war between China and Japan would be a global disaster and not just with Japan. And it might easily evolve into something much worse. Raphael says, both you guys, how do you see this? Yesterday, the US State Department was answering questions about them being charged with war crimes alongside two. Well, I know that that's going to that's going to intensify and it's going to grow because um, we've had uh, well maybe one shouldn't take this completely seriously but we've had uh, Turkish officials going out and briefing people after Blinken leaves Turkey that the United States is enabling Israel to act with impunity and you can see the narrative that's starting to build uh, um, um, war crimes have been committed in Gaza, and the United States is is an accessory to them because it's enabling them. Mm. Uh, and thank you for that super sticker. Johan says, is there any numbers for the Russian KIA versus Ukraine KIA? Yeah, yeah, there are numbers, and they're very interesting numbers. Media zoner. Media zoner, exactly. And, I mean, I think that they're actual... Um, actual raw figures for Russian deaths, KIAs, for this entire conflict is something like 35,000. Now, most people think that it's higher than that. I think Media Zona thinks it's between 40 and 50,000. That is a fraction <laughs> of what most people calculate Ukrainian losses to be. Even the um, US is now talking about 100,000 KIA in Ukraine. And by the way, that's almost certainly too low. And um, the other thing that Media Zoner is showing is that since the start of Ukraine's offensive, KIA losses in Russia have fallen. They're continuing to fall. I mean, it, and how do they obtain this information? Because they're able, they go through every single public record that they can find across Russia, not so difficult to do, by the way. They look at obituary notices, notices of funerals, notices of deaths, and they're able to collate them, and they're able to come up with these results. So it's it's based on actual hard work and methodology. And media zone is not Russia-friendly. Russia. No, not at, at all. all. Not at all. Well, it works with the BBC, suffice yeah. to say. Yeah. Uh, not a banned account. Would a re-elected Trump embolden Russian expansion? No, because there is no... I, people mm -hmm. constantly talk about Russian expansion. What 
Russian expansion. What what are they talking about? I mean, what what we have seen is a crisis that was created in Ukraine, which was entirely the product of Western policy, West pushing um, Ukraine towards NATO, the West refusing to uh, work to get the Minsk agreement implemented and openly sabotaging it, the West engineering regime change in Ukraine and putting pressure on Russia in that way by trying to, said, to get Ukraine into NATO. That has led to Russian expansion because the Russians have had to take steps to protect, as they put it, their Western borders. And that is what has led to Russian expansion. Engagement with the Russians, which is what Donald Trump was seeking to do, wasn't, didn't bring about Russian expansion. There was no Russian expansion when he was president. All the Russian expansion that has happened has happened since Joe Biden was elected. Mobius Zero, why is East Asia so damn bizarre? I mean, on one hand, Korea, Japan, China are all ready to beat the crap out of each other, yet hundreds of thousands of Chinese live in Japan. Do they hate each other or do they not? Well, if you've been to these countries, now I've never been to Japan, but I've been to China and Korea. Can I just say something which people don't understand about East Asia? It is that they are completely different from each other. Yes, there are certain superficial similarities, but um, China is as different from uh, Korea, South Korea, as Sweden is from uh, Spain, to give you an example. I mean, they are completely different. And just as there have been tensions and animosities in Europe, so inevitably there have been between these very different countries, which have had very complex histories with each other. Sophisticated cavemen. Will India send workers to Israel? Optics of that? Well, who knows? <laughs> I mean, um, um, I, 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 there are lots of Indian workers working all over the Middle East. My, my um, wife, for example, has been several times to Dubai, and she spoke, she's spoken to me about the huge numbers of Indian people who are working in Dubai, for example. And she was treated there for a medical condition by an Indian doctor. Hmm. Raphael says, Alex, do you agree Messi winning the Ballon d'Or? Yes. Hmm. It incorporates the World Cup, I believe. So, yes. Hmm. Uh, Global Man says, the Zionists have made the NAZI gas chambers look merciful. No, I don't accept that. I mean, I, that, that you, one, one, can't, one can't possibly say that. I mean, whatever has happened up to now doesn't in any way make anything like that uh, 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 appear merciful. It, it's quite the opposite. I mean, th th this violence should remind us of that previous violence, which to, to such a great extent is, has brought the current violence about. Mobius Zero says, overall, does Japan even have what it takes to fight China when even the U.S. doesn't? China can crush Japan like a bug. Well, it can't crush Japan like a bug. And I think that's an important thing to say. I mean, Japan does have a significant military, a large fleet, um, a significant air force. Um, it would certainly be able to put a fight for itself. If this was a purely conventional war, 
then China, of course, would win. But of course, the danger is that it would escalate and nuclear weapons would be used. And as I said, Japan can apparently produce nuclear weapons very fast. So we have to always remember that because that would be a catastrophe. Catastrophe for Japan, probably an existential disaster for Japan, uh, a, a, a major disaster for China and a disaster for all humanity. ThinkPad20 asks, Israel has long wielded immense influence over politics in America and the West. More broadly, does the Gaza debacle threaten the end of this dominance? Yes. I mean, I'll tell you this. I've never seen more criticism of Israel within the United States than I have seen over the course of this crisis. I mean, mm. I'm surprised how much criticism there has been. Ricardo says Israel supported the American position on the so-called Uyghur uh, genocide. Of course it did, yes. <laughs> Mobius Zero, does anyone else think that as far as the U.S. West is concerned, South Korea is irrelevant and expendable? North Korea could level the place tomorrow, but as long as Japan exists, all is well. Um, well, I mean, I'll tell you something else. I've been to South Korea, and I, again, one of the things you notice when you're there immediately is that there is no love lost between people in South Korea and Japan. All of those tensions still exist. I do think South Korea is insignificant and unimportant. It is an economic powerhouse. And if you go there, and admittedly, I went there 20 years ago, but I found it a very impressive place. Uh, Marcelo says Bratislava was, was a very pleasant surprise to me. Mm. Okay, definitely. It has a wonderful symphony orchestra, by the way. Can I just say? Definitely Just worth going then. Uh, Paula says, isn't this 9-11 copy by the Israelis an attempt by the globalists to undermine BRICS? I don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I know that there is a lot of speculation and rumor about how the events of 7th of October came about. Um, I, I think that one would need an awful lot more investigation to know exactly how it did come about. And we haven't seen that. But I, I think that if the globalists were involved in the way that you suggest, then it's not undermining the BRICS. It's making the BRICS stronger and more coherent and look more attractive to most of the world. And I think in terms of the losers, the major loser at the moment, apart from Europe, which loses every, every time, every place, and will continue to do so whilst people like Ursula von der Leyen and Baerbock and co are around. But apart from that, the Europeans, the other big loser at the moment is the United States. Yep. Um, Nautilus says, this S has pissed me off so bad I'm going up the mountain. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that, Nautilus. Uh, Moon Dragon says, did you hear that Ukraine is joining the EU, the EU dear Lord? Oh, yeah, no, poor, poor Ukraine. <laughs> That's all oh, I can say. <laughs> uh, Sparky says, my German super chat was just my usual make Ukraine Russia again in German. I struggle with English, my mother tongue, much less a foreign language. So admittedly, it's a machine translation. Okay. Thank you, Sparky, for that. Uh, Nitswitch says, can you guys comment on Ben Shapiro's escapade about Russia and being a gas station and how his thinking is similar to McCain's? Thanks. Well, is I have recent. It's about presumably. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, he said it in the past. 
He said it in the past. You know, actually, Putin himself even alluded to this. And he said, you know, that in order for us to be really respected and understood, manufacturing needs to become the core of our economy again. And um, to be clear about this, Russia has never been just a gas station. Even in the 90s, that was, uh, 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 you know, a facile thing to say. And it's it's certainly not that not that anymore. Yeah, I would I, I wouldn't place too much right. trust on on his foreign policy. Uh, well, perspective analysis. His, his, his other stuff, domestic U.S. Yeah. Okay, but his foreign yeah. policy, I wouldn't yeah. no. I wouldn't take that to uh, to heart. Uh, Raphael says, guys, can you both tell me a bit more about that beautiful sister Claire Daly? This is like I am listening to Jesus Christ talking inside the temple well all i can tell you about claire daly is that she's uh, from from ireland she's one of the most few dissident voices still left in the european parliament we did a wonderful program with her uh, uh, um, on the duran glendice and the nine and we look forward to having her again and she's one of the last voices left of a left of a kind that i remember from long ago the social democratic left that once upon a time in a universe far away, I also was part of. Tish M says, would you please add Richard Bethurst to your guest roster? Yes, I think that's a possible idea. Good, It's yes. a good idea, yeah. Uh, JB says, talk to me about Turkey entering conflict and Hamas Hezbollah in Mexico crossing the USA border. Well, I, 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 all I'm going to say about that, because it, the, the, there is a lot here that I, I am not really familiar with, but whilst going through the myriad of articles that I read every day, I noticed, I think it was in foreign policy, that there was an article that went with the rather disturbing title, why the US shouldn't invade Mexico. And I said, what on earth is all this about? And I said to myself, I must go back and read this article. And unfortunately, I haven't yet found the time to do so. I don't know what Turkey is doing in Mexico. I can't imagine that they're doing very much. I can't, don't know what exactly is going on between um, all these various actors, and you said, in Mexico. As far as I understand it, the major threat to Mexico relates to the illegal drugs and migrations and that kind of thing. But a U.S. invasion of Mexico, some kind of threat to Mexico, to the U.S. from Mexico, all of this seems to me bizarrely far-fetched. And the fact that people are talking about an invasion of Mexico from the U.S., I, I, it just leaves me speechless. Uh, Mike Watts says, what are your thoughts on RFK Jr.'s campaign? I, I, I had high hopes for it. I'm going to say straight away, I personally, and I, you know, I'm not a huge expert on American domestic politics, not by any stretch. Um, I, I personally think he made a mistake by going independent so soon. I think he should have tested the water mm -hmm. in the primaries, seen how well he did there. Um, maybe, that, and then then maybe thought about it. Uh, Alexander, that is... Uh... You are 1,000% spot on. Mm. Sometimes it's good to be a little bit more patient because look at how Biden is imploding. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably should have waited a little bit more because you never know what what, what can happen. Yeah. And uh, Biden is falling apart. Yeah. So there may, there may have been some sort of opening for uh, RFK Jr. But anyway, that's, mm. he, he made the decision to go independent. 
Um, let's see, Garland Nixon. Mm-hmm. Hello, the Garland. Best- Great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for all your various messages. The, I read them all. The, the Garland mm-hmm. says the best show on YouTube. Oh. Say the second best show. Second show best. Garland and Garland, uh, we 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 gotta do a show, Garland. So let's we absolutely let's yeah. email and let's do a show. Mm. Let's get you on so we can talk about uh, all of the interesting news that mm. is taking place. Uh, Geyer says, "Love and peace from Norway." Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Raphael says, "When watching what Israel is doing to Palestine." Irma G starts to look nice to me. I believe she knew something we could not see. They are the same. I'm not sure I, I understand that. Sorry. Irma Irma G. Irma G. No, I, I'm not sure I know. Who, I'm not sure I know. Raphael, can you can you put in the chat? Yeah. Um, some explanation. Irma G. Some explanation. Yeah, yeah that'd be yeah. cool. Uh, Nicholas Burns says International Atomic Agency refused access to inspect Israel for nuclear weapons. It is said Israel converts submarines to fire nuclear weapons. Oh yes, uh, this has been talked about for many years, and that Israel has a, a, um, a submarine-based deterrent capability. Of course, we don't know very much about Israel's nuclear weapons capability, and of course, we don't know the doctrine that underpins uh, use of nuclear weapons. Or Irma Irma Gret- Gresset. No, Irma I don't know Gresset. this. I'm sorry, I, I don't know this person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 I, I do know. I mean, if this is if this is what this is connected to, I do know that way back um, when the Zionist movement first started, there was a current within Zionism, which was very very concerned about establishing good relations, proper relations between Jewish people and Arab people in Palestine, and they predicated a lot of their thinking on the idea that the Palestinians were descendants of the people who had also been Jewish people before the fall of the temple. Mm. They stayed there and eventually went, first became Christian and then became Muslim, though some of them are still Christian, by the way. Uh, and that what happened was that there was a sundering of the peoples with the people who had to leave, the ones who went into exile, Um, uh, staying with Judaism and developing Judaism, and that the way to approach this was to bring these two parts of the tree together again, to find some means to share the land together and to bring the people together made up of these two nations. It's a very idealistic, somewhat utopian conception in early Zionism. And by the way, one also marked by strong commitment to socialism. So, you know, just, just, just saying. But, you know, maybe you could revive those ideas again. I don't know. Hammer 88, talking to the grand community. Garland says, RFK's position on Israel doomed him. His following is not aligned with him on that issue. I, 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 I'm sure that is true, actually. I'm sure that's absolutely right. Yeah, very true. And Nitswitch says, to clarify, it was not about the gas station comment that took my interest but about how Shapiro and McCain's thinking are similar, neocon-wise. And sorry, I thought it was a recent comment. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a recent comment. I, I'm, I'm sure he's he's. I'm sure he said often. it, yeah, all of it. Yeah, yeah sure. absolutely, yeah, he absolutely. He's, he, he's, he's not a fan of, of Russia, and he is no. a, a McCain. He's like Alexander. He's like these, these like, new... These, uh, these, these new, like, new-age neocons, kind of, absolutely. you know? These... Yeah. these like content creator neocons is, is yes. what Ben Shapiro is like, but yeah. 
Yeah, he's he follows John McCain's ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, K1FH says, hi from Charlottesville, Virginia, where J6 got its test run. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, from Eric, thank you for that super chat. GM says, no elections in Ukraine were announced by Elensky. Are we close to finally seeing his final Scarface moment? Most likely be running the coup. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, a lot going on there, of course. I mean, I have to say, I was always skeptical that there would be elections. I think the only reason that was talk about elections is because somebody in Washington is trying to find some uh, uh, nice way of getting Zelensky out of office. And of course, he understands what's going on. He knows perfectly well what this is all about. He knows that the elections are a device to get rid of him, so he's cancelled them. <laughs> that's what that's all about. But of course, Scarface moment, I mean, we've had this murder. I, I'm sure it was a murder of this assistant to Zeluzhny. Zeluzhny and Zelensky are bitter rivals at the moment. It looks like some very kind of complex and ugly power struggle is taking place. And then Calarissian says, I've gained a new respect for Russia's SMO, given the carnage Israel has inflicted on Gaza. I think that's an important observation to say. I mean, you know, we, we've we had many criticisms of the media in the West of uh, a supposed, well, of, you know, claimed Russian war crimes. But it all looks very pale compared to what we've seen. Not a banned account says, how soon may the American victims of MAGA brainwashing be compassionately re-educated as Secretary Clinton suggested. They've been badly misled. I think that is such an extraordinary question. <laughs> I don't really know how to answer it, to be quite honest. I think, well, all I will say is this, that brainwashing is a very big word. And I don't think anybody's been brainwashed, actually, mm -hmm. on the MAGA front. I think people know exactly what they're doing. I, I, I would just say we should all just you know, listen to what Hillary Clinton has to say and just follow her lead. I think it's very important to, to follow her lead on, on these issues. Yes, that's very good. That's very good. Yes, I agree yeah, with that. Especially in these difficult times. Yes. Uh, Hillary Clinton can, can show us the way. Uh, Pro86 says, any recommendations for Russian language sources, podcast books, movies for news about geopolitical events? Oh, goodness. Uh, um, many telegram channels. Many telegram many, channels, exactly. Many websites. I yes, mean, I know. Yeah. All, all kinds of, of, of websites and telegram channels mm. to follow. Yeah. Uh, Sparky says Hezbollah Arab governments and Iranian governments are treading lightly on speaking in support of Hamas. They don't want to interfere with BRICS progress and aren't thrilled about Hamas being Muslim Brotherhood. Absolutely true. I mean, the last is a very good point. And it brings me back to my point about what Israel could have done. Uh, after the events of the 7th of October. There is no great uh, liking for Hamas across the Arab world. Um, the problem is that going into Gaza, uh, 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 in conducting the kind of military operation there that we are seeing, makes it impossible for Arab governments to put their dislike and mistrust of Hamas center stage because they're seeing Arabs, Arab civilians, including children, being killed. And that has to be their biggest priority. Mobius Zero says, could black people like myself survive in Russia? 
Yes. Oh, yes. I, I, I've, I've met black people. There's no problem at all, if I may say. Yeah. None. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of stories about this, but there's no there is no truth to this. Go to Russia, visit Russia. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've, 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 met, I've met, I've met, by the way, black Russians, that, uh, uh, children who are uh, people who were children of uh, Russian um, parents, uh, part Russian, part African student parents. And, you know, they've won, are you one in London? And she described her childhood and it was fine. Not a problem. Yeah. Um, where are we? And in Calarissian says, can Israel survive without America and the collective West? Yes, I think it can, actually. I think that this is a misunderstanding. I think that um, Israel, I mean, maybe once it was dependent on the US for its survival. I do think this is um, um, a, a, a relationship of that kind of dependence anymore. Uh, Lorraine says, I missed the last few lives, but always... Get you on the catch up. Thanks, gents. Thanks for that. And Mobia Zero says, Alex and Alex, why do you guys think China doesn't take a harder line on Japan, all things considered? Well, I think the Chinese take a very hard line on Japan, but the Chinese um, have, I mean, they're a huge country, they have a huge economy. And I think what they, their, their preferred approach is to take it slow and to wait. And I think they're waiting, to, they're waiting for the day when American power in the East will fade and when Japan will reassess its foreign policies. Um, as, as, as Aliyah says, why, we asked this, why did you think it was so important for Israel to go through the motions of diplomacy and UN I think, resolutions? I think, I, I, think I, we, I, I think we answered I, I think this, answered yeah. This one, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing. No, I'm not so track here a bit. Uh, Mark Harper says, uh, INP to Sinn Féin is equal to SNP to ALBA. INP. The INP to is, Sinn Féin yes, is equal to yes, yes, SNP to ALBA. The, it, is, it is one of the more radical uh, uh, parties in um, in Ireland. Uh, I mean, the point, and this is a, this is a criticism I actually heard, heard of Sinn Féin, that Sinn Féin has worked so hard now to assimilate itself into the mainstream of Irish politics, that it's losing its radical edge and its radical roots. And um, even when I went to Derry, which is, of course, in the north of Ireland back in 2017, um, you were hearing criticisms from some of its working class, traditional working class supporters, that um, Sinn Féin is becoming too comfortable as part of the political system. Um, but I won't pretend that I'm an expert on Irish politics in, to that extent. I can't talk about rivals to Sinn Féin. In Scotland, ALBA, which is the party that Alex Salmond, the former head of the SNP, created uh, when he fell out with Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, it, it has to be said, it hasn't made any kind of impact, visible impact up to now. It's not managed to win the support of nationalists' opinion. Um, that is becoming demoralized. And interestingly, some of it is trickling back to Labour. Um, ThinkPad20 says, is Turkey really trying, tr still trying to get into the EU or is it just for political cover? 
And wouldn't it be a big insult to let Ukraine in before them? Well, I think Erdogan knows perfectly well that he, he Turkey's not going to ever join the EU, and I don't think he cares about it. But it, it suits him to pretend that this is going to happen, and he's able to play up for this from to play up yeah. to this from time to time. I, and that's all that there is to it. I think at this point, the only thing that matters for uh, for Turkish citizens, as far as the EU is concerned, is just visas and exactly. travel. I exactly. think if they have that, they're they're perfectly fine. Absolutely. They can just travel to Europe. Mm. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure what the visa policy is at the moment, yeah. but I think they have yeah. three months without a visa to, exactly. to enter uh, Europe. So I think they're happy with that. Mm. I guess uh, Eric uh, Hatchet says, "Does does uh, Moshi Dayan's quote still carry any weight? This time, everyone climbs in the oven." <laughs> Moshi Dayan's quote. Yeah, Moshe Dayan. I think you're probably right. I, I mean, I did. I, I am not familiar with that quote myself. I, it's a, I mean, it's a very frightening one, and um, I, I, I think you know, in Israel's own interests, it needs to put behind it some of this fear that uh, the events of the 1940s have created. Azalea says, why do you think India and China backed out of the BRICS commodity-backed currency? Can currencies like this work without giving up some sovereignty? No, I don't think they backed out of it. I don't think it was ever, I don't think it was ever seriously intended because I think that for the moment, um, the mechanics for this don't exist. What, what they decided to do, they, I mean, there, were, there were lots of discussions last year and in the run-up to the Rick summit in Johannesburg, and they decided that the correct way to go was to try to set up some kind of interbank payment system between themselves. And I think that will come, actually. Jeff Bickford, thank you for that super sticker. Azalea, what is Qatar's interest in Hamas, and how come the financing of Hamas is not getting more attention? Yeah, and that's a very good question. What is Hamas? I, I, I mean, it, it, it ought to be getting attention because it's quite clear to me that most of Hamas's funding has not, in fact, been coming from Iran. It's been coming from Qatar to some extent, but also from various other uh, Sunni groups and people around the Middle East. And, of course, from the big network of the Muslim Brotherhood that exists across the, the Arab world as well. Well, briefly, Qatar has a historic rivalry with Saudi Arabia. Now, but I ought to say that the royal family of Qatar are themselves followers of the Wahhabi um, ideology, if you like, which is the one that you see in Saudi Arabia. But they've been rivals with each other about this, and the relationship between the two is not good. So Qatar has sought to find allies for itself across the Arab world, it is extremely rich, and it's done it by funding Muslim groups that are known to be hostile to Saudi Arabia, and that has brought it into proximity with the Muslim Brotherhood, and that, by extension, means it's brought it into contact with Hamas. And, of course, by supporting Hamas, Qatar is also able to say that they've been supporting the Arab resistance to Israel. Mayor, welcome to that. Welcome to the direct community. Uh, Mama Alaska says, U.S. multinational corporation masquerading as a nation. <laughs> Thank you for that. As, as Aliyah says, Alexander's pronunciation of San Francisco, in Chirlik and Hamas is very unique. 
I know. I'm told this all the time. <laughs> Lada Moreau, how did you take Zelensky using the F word talking about President Putin in his interview? Zelensky came out came out as a no statesman in it. Yeah, he was he's a mess. He's, he's a, a mess. He's, he looks a complete a mess. mess and he sounds a complete mess and he's talking in ways that are so this is a train wreck. It's a, it's a train wreck, exactly. It's a train wreck, yeah. Zelensky's yeah. A train wreck. Uh, Ricardo Alfonso says Western elites are extremely solipsistic. They will never understand why no one else can view the world the way they do. They never matured mentally. You're absolutely right about them. I mean, it's a good point, actually. Yeah. 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 Uh, T. Herbas says uh, HU. Hungary is still under incredible pressure from the EU US aside from standing on principle. Will there be any tangible benefit for its position when this war is over? How does Moscow view HU now? I think I think they are very uh, I think that they get on very well, actually. And of course, Putin at uh, Orban, I think they will get on perfectly well. And you're quite right. They are under enormous pressure. But I think I think Hungary, I mean, Alex actually said it in a recent program, it's going to come out the big winner at the end of the Ukraine war. Big winner. Big Very winner. big winner, yeah. Emil Z says, are the Middle East leaders not acting like Latin American leaders because they have sacrificed the Palestinian for a new Su Suez Canal alternative, the Ben-Gurion Canal project and gas from Gaza? Well... <laughs> People have made that comparison between um, Arab leaders and Latin American <laughs> dictators. Uh, and there's some, I suppose, some truth in it was. But I, I think that this is becoming obsolete, actually, partly because it's important to say this. Those policies that the Arab states used to follow were the policies they followed because the big power in the Middle East was the United States. That isn't the case anymore so they're now starting to act independently and we could start to see the way that the ground is shifting og wall says does israel need the gaza strip to turn it into a port to build an alternative canal to the suez canal well why not but you know why not why not come to a peace agreement with the palestinians uh, set up a state and build a port together and it's impossible Gene Sweeney says, is the, is the Zionist power base in the U.S. from the evangelicals, Christians, Catholics, or other? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, going to try and distinguish yeah. the demographics. Yeah. I mean, I, I simply don't know. Yeah, I think definitely not Catholics. No, I, I don't mean, think so. I, agree. I would agree with I that. I think that's yeah. Catholicism, but maybe evangelicals, if I were to yes, guess. Yes, yes. I don't know. Uh, Sparky says, although the Holocaust may have helped get UN approval of Israel, people should remember Israel's creation was primarily a British neocolonial strategy like India and Pakistan. It didn't go smoothly. Yes, and I, I, I am completely in agreement with that, by the way. Uh, um, there's a lot of discussion about British policy in the 1920s and 30s. And it's probably true that the British themselves never came to a united view about this. There were always some British officials who were skeptical about the whole process of creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But undoubtedly, the British did facilitate it. And of course, at the time of the Balfour Declaration, they invited Jewish people to, essentially invited Jewish people, to set up a homeland 
in Palestine. AM says Tusk's win brought with it talk of changes vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainian policy and domestic policy. Heard nothing from Poland from Poland in the MSM. What's what's happening? I agree. I, it's interesting. And first of all, by the way, we still haven't had a, pr a prime minister. This is turning into a protracted process. But there was a long piece in, I think it was foreign affairs, which actually said that with respect to policy on Ukraine, it was unlikely that Poland would change its policies so much from what we saw in the last months of the um, previous administration, that the, the mood in Poland about Ukraine has now shifted to the point where it simply isn't going to be possible for the current, the new government, when it's eventually formed, to go back to the policies that we were seeing a couple of months ago. Yep. Um, Zarael says, what do you judge think is going to happen with this new development, Warship Destroyer in Crimea? Oh, this was the one, this was the um, uh, the Karakurts uh, missile corvette that got hit by the missile. I, I, I think that inevitably, first of all, I mean, this, this, I think this, this ship was under construction. Um, uh, the, the, the Russians were starting to develop the shipyards in Crimea to launch construction programs for various naval ships, but they were still at a fairly early stage. And I think that what we're going to see is a construction of these kind of warships will be transferred for the time being, whilst the special military operation is underway to other shipyards elsewhere in Russia. And the Karakuts are relatively small warships, I understand, and made for mass production. The problem they have had producing them is that the engines actually used to be made in Ukraine, and the Russians have it's taken them a long time to develop an alternative engine, but they have apparently done so. Now, I don't think this particular incident in and of itself is particularly important. The biggest story of that attack is that Ukraine launched dozens of missiles towards Crimea on that particular day. And this was the only damage that they did. So they're going through their stock of missiles very fast and achieving relatively little. That is how it looks to me. Ricardo Alfonso says, just to end on a positive note, Alexander must be a dog person. My pug always listens attentively to oh, you when you speak. I'm both a dog and a cat person. There's, hmm. there's three cats in the house, three at the moment, and uh, two beautiful golden retrievers who are my pride and joy. <laughs> Sparky says, U.S. foreign policy is run by evil fools who make decisions based on bogus or otherwise misleading intelligence. Uh, absolutely. Beautifully <laughs> well said. said. <laughs> As Aliyah says, in times where the West is focused on a crisis like Ukraine-Israel, what are some creative or best uses of flying under the media radar by other actors? Oh. That's a good question. Uh, um, um, how, well, do you have any thoughts here, Alex? I'm slightly at a loss to say. I mean, lo lots of things going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, all the time. So look at Myanmar. Look at Myanmar. Yeah. I mean, Myanmar, exactly. You have, yeah. you have 
a conflict is, is, is taking place there, but no one's really thing. paying attention. Yeah. And, and there are positive things going on in the world too, no, which you mustn't, uh, we mustn't overlook. So, you know, there's lots going on, but of course it's these big crises that dominate events and which we have to focus on. Yeah. Uh, Tatiana, thank you for that super sticker. W. Lim says, why do you think Israel and the U.S. should care about the UNGA resolutions? The UNGA voted against Cuba sanctions 30 plus years in oh, a row. The UNGA voted for the U.K. to return the Chagos Islands. None of these have had any yes, effect. Yes, yes, because the, these are resolutions that have, uh, to be straightforward about it, a token quality. I mean, nobody in the world cares enough about just to be blunt about this the cuban um, the cuban embargo to want to really make take steps to force the united states to change it the middle east is a completely different problem because people around the world care they care a lot that that's that's the that's the important thing to understand arab governments care a lot they have their own militias operating within their own countries that are dangerous they have restive populations there's the bigger muslim world which is also engaged and there is also the bigger sense around the world that the palestinian issue this issue at the center of politics matters for the global majority also that it's somehow symptomatic of the funda fundamental injustice that is going on in the world so i think this is different i think it is qualitatively different issue and what we're going to be seeing is more resolutions more more resolutions working their way through the u through the uh, un system and we're already seeing pressure in the united states american diplomats uh writing letters of dissent and things of that kind mobius says my saying for japan live like a fool die like a fool yeah, true enough. <laughs> uh, Tabernak says, when America becomes a country again and gives up the plan to rule the planet, we'll once again have the highest standard of living, best with blessed with abundance. I agree. You know, I've I've said this all along. I mean, uh, um, America, I think, has nothing to fear from peaceful competition. Nicholas Burns says, Alexander, can you please remind us of the difference between people of Jewish faith and Zionism? <sighs> Jewish faith. Well, there's Judaism, which is a religion, and there is Zionism, which is a political movement, which developed in the late 19th century, and which sought to establish a Jewish state, Israel, in, the, in Palestine, the historic land of Israel, which was also once called Canaan. That's the fundamental difference. Spock 23, awesome super chat from Spock 23. Thank you very much. Keep Gonzalo Lira alive in social media. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. We shouldn't forget him. Shouldn't forget him. We we just no. don't have any any new information to no. No. to uh to report. That's why we haven't said anything because we no. just don't have anything to, no. to report on. So mm. uh Jay Run says, why didn't they edit Zelensky's F terrorist comment? Why did they have why did they have it on air? That's a very good question, actually. Why did they have it on air? It was scripted. <laughs> oh, it was scripted, probably. But, I mean, uh, disastrous as well, it must have said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one sec, Alexander, I lost my place. 
Tabernacle, top five geopolitical events since Biden's presidency. Top five? Gosh. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> the war in Ukraine, the war that we're seeing, uh, the war that we're seeing in the Middle East. Um, I'm going to suggest also the collapse in relations between China and the United States, which is far worse now than they were at the time of the Biden uh, the Trump administration. And that, of course, includes the uh, Huawei uh, chip, <laughs> um, the um, elections in Brazil, and the fact that Brazil is now reintegrating in the BRICS, and the fact that this was that big BRICS summit in Johannesburg with enormous amount of BRICS expansion and with the um, moves towards setting up this global financial and trading system independent of the United States. So there's five, <laughs> and they're all negative for the United States. He's been a disaster. Oh, absolutely. The United States, for the world, absolutely. he's been absolutely. a disaster. Absolutely. Death Dealer 1341, I hope you both agree with me, is that the only way that Biden would have would save his presidency is no wars, but he did that to himself. Absolutely, completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Gypsy Cruiser, welcome to the Duran community. Nicholas says, the International Atomic Agency refused access to inspect Israel for nuclear weapons. It is said Israel converts submarines to fire nuclear missiles. Yeah, I think we've answered that one. Did, did we yeah. answer that? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. it's true. Um, Raphael says, when watching what Israel is doing to Palestine. Oh, no, we answered that as well. I lost my place again. Oh, boy. Uh, let's see. Give me one second, Alexander. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, Raphael, Blinken is becoming a funny but sad character. The King of Jordan will not pose with him. He tried to hug the Turkish minister. He stopped him. Yeah. Yeah, Blinken. absolutely. I know. Everyone is just no. laying into Blinken. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Buttons says, would it be beneficial for team multipolar world in Russia if Russia dragged the war on as long as possible and drained the U.S. and its minions? No, I don't think so. I think you, if you, well, I, I presume you're talking about Ukraine now, but no, I think that the Russians are working according to their plan, and they're not going to be either hurried or slowed by such political considerations. I think this has been the pattern of Russian decision making since at least the summer of last year. From Monty 105. Alexander, you said you've been to Sofia. Can you please share oh, no. your impressions of the city? Oh, I mean, I haven't been to Sofia for years, but I, I used to love Sofia. It was a very, very clean, beautiful place. Some very interesting architecture as well, by the way. There's a, uh, um, uh, a very impressive Orthodox church, cathedral there. Uh, there's some Soviet-era buildings, which I also found impressive. But it is... A, a very Bulgaria is a very interesting country because there's a lot that is still Mediterranean, but it isn't fully Mediterranean. It's and Sofia, a bit like Belgrade, is like that. So you have, you know, outdoor cafes, you have all those kind of things, um, but at the same time, it has a kind of more Central European feel. At least this was my my own feeling about Sofia. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. uh, clean, orderly, tidy, prosperous, affluent. But those were the old days. What it's like today, I don't know. 
Leon Lawrence, thank you for that super sticker. Mr. Scott says, the conflict has started talk about mass deportations in Europe. Why did it take Jews being targeted for EU politicians to care about demographics? Well, good question. <laughs> Uh, Sparky says, RFK Jr.'s campaign was if infiltrated by ultra-Zionist commentator Rabbi uh, Shmuley, who ended up having a huge influence on RFK Jr., which ultimately will be his downfall. I, I think that exactly as was said, he has gone against his own electoral support base by the positions that he has taken. I've got to say something, though, that the Kennedy family generally have tended to be very supportive of Israel. His father, Robert Kennedy, for example, supported Israel very passionately in the 60s. Alex, welcome to the Duran community. Sparky says Garland Nixon is brilliant. He is. <laughs> nice guy. Nationalist says, unrelated, take the collective efforts of the Duran crew are to be treasured. I try to catch your updates daily and valuable for keeping up with important world events. Keep up the great work, guys. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Uh, let's see, Ray Joseph, thank you for that super chat. PMP, uh, thank you for that super sticker. John Roberts says, do you believe in the concept of peak oil? Do you think the quest to control oil, natural gas assets are what's really driving the conflicts in the Middle East? You know, this is such a, this is such a widespread thing back in the 90s that we were approaching peak oil. And then um, the shale revolution came along and people said, this isn't really going to be a problem. And then the shale revolution ran its course, and then we all moved it towards EVs and electrical things, and windmills and all that kind of thing. And there's some people in Britain, at least, who now are very active. They want to you know, stop oil entirely. I, I, I am not an energy geologist. Um, I, I don't know whether peak oil, I mean, presumably at some point, like every resource, it must be finite. But I, I, I'm not going to get into this. Um, I, I don't think, this is my own sense, I don't think that there is such a big oil shortage as to explain all of these conflicts. What I do think was the case, especially during the George W. Bush period, is that I think that at that time, very much the Neocon project was to get control of the major oil and energy centers as a way of exerting US dominance. And that played a big role in US policy in the Middle East at that time. But I suspect that is less so today. Alex Nassau says, the US government takes all its cues from Wall Street. The public interest is undermined as corporate governance is the greatest threat to humanity. There is a lot to be said there. That's, there's a lot of truth there. Mm -hmm. Raphael says, uh, Russia used a missile in Ukraine, does not kill, does not destroy anything, but destroys all electronic devices and signals within six miles radius and 100 meters down below. The USA asks Russia to see it. Interesting. Okay. Spark Sparky says, people cop out and say they've been fighting for thousands of years. They begin with the Philistines, then skip 3,000 years of relative harmony among Jews and Arabs to the 20th century when Europe intervened. Well, I think there's an awful lot of truth in that, actually. I think there's an awful lot of truth. I mean, people always, when they talk about relations between nations, not just Jews and Arabs, but other nations as well, tend to emphasize the wars they fight between each other and not the very, very long periods of peace that, in fact, are in many cases more um, symptomatic of their relations.
K-Max says, everyone is ignoring the historical context of the Israeli-Palestinian relations and the pervasiveness, pervasiveness of Zionism in the Israeli policy, stamping out terrorism is the straw man argument. Well, I know a lot of people say this, and I think there's an awful lot of truth in that too, but you have to try and somehow move beyond that and move forward. Of course, there is, and of course, one can't discount the fact that there is uh, that there is um, terror terrorism as well. But you you have to move forward. You have to say, look, you have this these ideas. They may be they may have been pervasive, but they are leading you into a dead end. And you've got in your own interest to put all that behind you and move forward. And you can argue that maybe you will meet a lot of resistance at the beginning. But I suspect that most people in most places want to live a peaceful life and increasingly more and more people will listen to you. John Roberts says, thank you for the answer. Love the Duran on no. peak oil. Thank no. you for that, John. Sparky says in Qatar, the Delaware is Qatar, the Delaware of countries. Delaware is a state known to be friendly to unscrupulous financial entities. By the way, their senator became president. Very good. <laughs> no. Senator Biden. Well, Interesting uh, mm -hmm. question, comment from Sparky. Schultz Report, thank you for that super sticker. Schultz Report, thank you for that super chat. Sophisticated Caveman says, is Kosovo a war waiting to happen? Yes. How to address? <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> the short answer. How to address the United States pulls its, uh, its troops out of Kosovo. We go back to the original provisions of the UN resolutions, and we let the people of Serbia... Um, and that would include, in that case, the Albanian people in Kosovo to work it out between them. That's the best way to do it. And uh, Deathless, thank you for that super chat. And I think that is everything, Alexander. No. Fantastic Gosh. questions. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Fantastic questions. Fantastic questions. Fantastic comments. Let me just do a quick check. Uh, Alexander, final thoughts before we sign sign off as I uh, the, 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 any questions I, I i i mean this crisis at the moment is uh, the one in the middle east is the one that's monopolizing all the attention and it is and it is hugely important in, of itself and it is all the potential to spiral out of control but the real crisis the underlying crisis i come to the view is not in ukraine it's not in the middle east it is in washington you have a government in Washington that is dysfunctional, that is extremely aggressive. Garland Nixon is perhaps listening to us still. He wrote to me an email a long time ago, which he said, this is a very dangerous administration. And it is. And we see how it is not a coincidence that all of these wars are happening now. Yeah. And mm -hmm. a couple of more final questions, and we'll wrap this mm -hmm. one up uh, from... Tabernacle failure to take out Putin means any serious pivot towards China will fail. We have guaranteed the ride of the Rorim to be flanked in all directions. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I mean, the failure to take out Putin is the failure of the whole enterprise. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gypsy Cruiser says, what happens after the dust settles in Gaza? What does indeed happen? I don't know. And perhaps we shouldn't move too far ahead. That's what the uh, Arab leaders said to yeah. Blinken. <laughs> Unfortunately, Blinken and the EU is only talking about what happens after. After, exactly. Yeah. They're not talking about what to no. do now. No. And from, um, one sec. 
from uh, Idle Oregon, will the immigrants be integrated into the EU or will we see internal conflicts in these societies? Will European culture survive? Well, can I just say straight away, if you live, if you travel around France, if you travel around Germany, if you travel around some places in Britain, you will see that integration is not working. <laughs> so, I mean, it's especially, by the way, in France. And so there is already that problem there. And, you know, it is an important problem. Now, will European civilization survive? I believe so. I hope so. But, you know, we, we do need to think very hard about, you know, the problems that we have now. Um, and I don't want to uh, dwell on things or discuss things, but someone we know just went to a European capital <laughs> and was startled, one of the famous, important European capital, and was startled by the change that he found there. And we'll end it with Raphael's uh, question comment. Joseph Burrell this week said, we lost our intellectual superiority and we need to adjust to the new world. Guys, why more people are not ignoring? <laughs> well, can I just say, Joseph Burrell, we've lost our intellectual superiority. Well, that is certainly true. He, he lost <laughs> no, it a long time ago. He lost it a long time ago, exactly. Thank you, Raphael, for that. All right, we will end it there. Uh, thank you to uh, everyone that watched us on um, Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, thedoran.locals.com. Thank you to everyone in the chat on thedoran.locals.com. Tomorrow, Alexander, are you doing uh, your live stream Absolutely. tomorrow? The live stream tomorrow, obviously, on Locals at 1400 hours Eastern Standard Time. 1900 hours london time i'll be direct look yeah the direct and to all our moderators uh valley s peter tish zarael alan and uh, i think that's everybody thank you yeah. very much for everything that you do all right alexander uh, that was two and a half hours yeah. take yeah. care everybody <laughs>